0: Hello and welcome back to Black Exposure Podcast, formerly With That Said. If you've been here for a while, then you know I originally started my podcast because I was looking for a way to change my situation in corporate America. I was tired of being robbed of my intellectual property, tired of hitting the glass ceiling, and I was really frustrated with the status quo. I hope that by sharing my journey and my success, that I would influence change at a greater scale. And while I do still want to influence change for black professionals, there is a more pressing issue on our hands. And that issue is closing the wealth gap. Because of this, I rebranded my podcast to focus on doing just that. I truly believe that you are either contributing, sharing, engaging, or sitting on the sidelines. If you found yourself sitting on the sidelines, This podcast is an opportunity for you to get up off the bench and join the conversation. On this podcast, I'll give voice to all black professionals, black entrepreneurs, black parents, and black children. And together, we can share in our journey, our struggles, and our triumphs. Now let's get into the conversation. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Black Exposure, formerly with that set podcast. Today, I am thrilled to have a social justice warrior with me, Professor Wendy Green, who really needs no introduction. But for the sake of you all, I'll turn it over to her to introduce herself, Professor Wendy.
1: Hi, Amira. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast today. It is such an honor to be with you to talk about some of the work that I've been doing. Um, I am a professor of law at Drexel University, Klein School of Law, and I am also the founder of the hashtag FreeTheHair movement, which is a campaign that pretty much is a result over a decade of legal research, publications, public activism, and public engagement. That seeks to bring about legal, social, policy, and personal change so that African descendants around the world can freely rock our natural hair or freely wear our hair according to our personal needs and desires. So, through the hashtag FreeTheHair campaign, I'm essentially increasing public awareness around the systematic and global discrimination that African descendants suffer on the basis of our natural hairstyles like locks, braids, twists. Uh, Afros, Bantu knots, and so forth, and to, um, through the work um, now, many people may be aware, I'm one of the legal architects of what has become to known as uh, the Crown Act, the Creating a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair Act.
0: Yes, I was looking into, uh, I was reading about your background and how you grew up, um, and I I had an opportunity to come across an article that shed a little bit about your story of getting the chicken pox when you were a little girl. And then your <laughs> mom, i do not sure which of your parents, but um, they ended up giving you a book on Thurgood Marshall. And that sort of uh, inspired your passion for legal work. So if you wouldn't mind telling us, like, how did you grow up? What was your relationship like with your parents? And how did you get into legal work? Sure.
1: So um, I grew up in Columbia, South Carolina, and both of my parents uh, were integrationist in uh, South Carolina, throughout South Carolina, and uh, they both were civil rights activists during their, their college years at Benedict College, which is a historically Black college in Columbia, South Carolina. And as you mentioned, when I was about five years old, my mother gave me a book that featured featured black pioneers. And in that book, I came across Thurgood Marshall, and that was the first time I had actually been introduced to Justice Marshall and his role in uh, desegregating not only public schools throughout the country, but really advancing desegregation in all aspects of our lives during this era of Jim Crow. And again, Mm -hmm. that was the first time that I came across even this concept and this construct of Jim Crow and being curious about that and really trying to figure out why, uh, you know, out of all of the people in the world, did it appear that Africa descendants were the ones that were being targeted for this systematic racial suppression, racial subordination and oppression in this country. And that's what really um, generated the, the the passion or the seed, if you will, to become a civil rights lawyer, civil rights advocate, was really trying to dismantle forms of racial discrimination.
0: Mm-hmm. So two questions. The first is, where did you go to law school? What was your experience um, like in law school? Did you find that you were one, if not one of the only um, African-American women in your law class and then what did you study? Sure. So
1: I might be considered a crazy person and I went to law school twice.
0: <laughs> <So>. <laughs> that's not crazy. That's the, that's that's going back to make sure the people in the back heard it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so Some people may say I'm a glutton for punishment, but I um, graduated from Xavier University of Louisiana. Oh,
0: in Louisiana. Uh, my sister-in-law's uh, husband worked at that university. He ran oh, there. Wow. um he ran their uh, food services, uh, the, the cafeteria food yeah. services. So he was there for so many years. Oh well, up. Well, we
1: probably, stand up the <laughs> <we> cross path. I <laughs> will <laughs> have to say, one of my favorite things from the calf back then were the red beans and rice, they <laughs> the red beans are rice, uh, among other things. So yeah, so I attended and graduated from Xavier University. Louisiana, which also is, you know, as you know, a historically black college, and um, from there I went to Tulane Law School. So I stayed in New Orleans for seven years and graduated from Tulane. And then after that, um, and while I was at Tulane, I really came across this amazing article on comparative slavery and race relations law in the United States that was written by Professor Robert Cottrell. At George Washington University uh, School of Law. And it was at that moment that I had already started thinking about becoming a law professor. That's exactly what I said I wanted to be ultimately um, on my admissions materials and my personal statement for law school. Um, and it was at that moment that it really became very clear to me that I wanted to become a legal academic probably earlier than I had initially envisioned and when I read his piece, it just really showed me how I could actually explore the ways in which you know African descendants um positions our conditions um our experiences are very much still rooted in uh this the the system of racial. Slavery throughout the Western Hemisphere and really try to to offer hopefully some legal solutions to remedy the the longstanding racial inequalities and inequities that we have been encountered. And so it's through that work and through the support of, you know, uh, my law professors at Tulane, like Professor Ray Diamond and Professor Robert Wesley and Professor Wendy Brown Scott, who really encouraged to actually pursue a career in legal academia. And from there, I actually was able to, to be the beneficiary of Professor Robert Cottrell's uh, tutelage because he was my dissertation advisor wow. uh, when I decided to, to earn my, my master's in law at George Washington University School of Law. So everything sort of really came full circle mm. um, by being able to work with him. And and you study what aspect of law? Sure. So at George Washington University, um, my LLM is in comparative slavery and race relations in mm. the Americas and, and the Caribbean, and also specialized in employment discrimination law.
0: Whew. So you're at George Washington University, which brings me to my next point. I ended up seeing um, an article uh, where you sort of became a social justice warrior for the free the ha- for free the hair.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and,
0: and you wanted to challenge some important legislation and make sure that people of color, um, particularly African-Americans, um, were not discriminated against in the workplace. And before we get into that conversation, because that's the real the real juice of, <laughs> of the conversation here. Um, I wanted to share a story. When I was uh 25 years old, I was working for a very large financial services int- institution and I was um, sort of tapped for a, uh, a very big promotion, one that was going to double my salary. Um, and, you know, I, I interviewed, I did well, I aced it. I remember getting the job offer. It was it literally doubled my salary. It was more money than I thought I'd ever be making at that age. And I remember the panic that came over me in that moment. And the panic I felt was because I was going to be the only African-American um, in that department woman. Mm-hmm. I was 25 years old, which was probably 20 years younger than my nearest coworker at the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I remember my hair was very long. It was relaxed at the time because I was in corporate America. And, and, and as a, just like the free the hair campaign, 80% of black women believe that they can't wear their natural hair. Mm -hmm. At work. And and that Mm -hmm. I I fell into that 80 percent. So my hair was very long, though. And I thought that the long hair um, made me look young um,
1: Mm -hmm. because,
0: you know, it was sort of flowy and girly. So I ended up the day before I started my job. No, not the day before, probably a week into starting my job when I really started to feel inferior because I was young. I was black. And here I am looking like a child. And so I go to the hair salon, the beautician in Queens, and I tell this woman to cut off all of my hair mm-hmm. and I cut it into a short style, like a Halle Berry sort of look because I, I wanted to look older because mm-hmm. I wanted to assimilate really? and I cut off years and years and years of hair growth um, and I showed up to work and I, and I honestly, there was a difference in the way that mm-hmm. I was treated. Mm -hmm. After I cut my hair. Now, Mm -hmm. I don't know if maybe I changed or if they changed. I'm not sure. But it was a little bit more respect that I had gotten Mm -hmm. when I looked like I had an edge to me and I wasn't Mm -hmm. just a little girl. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that brings me to the conversation around, you know, what inspired you. You know, did you have a moment of your own like that, that is that triggered you into into seeing this is work that need to be fought for?
1: Sure. So thank you so much for sharing your story, because what what your story illuminates is that our hair actually does communicate so many things about our experiences and that our hair is such a fundamental part of our identity that really tells a story. You know, it tells so much about where we are in those moments in our lives and, and it, too, can be a force of empowerment and a source of empowerment as well. And um, and that's really um, a big part of why I really have engaged in the work um, to ensure that natural hair discrimination is treated as race discrimination um, and as a form of unlawful race discrimination. Under our federal civil rights laws. So what really like a lot of black women um, and girls, of course, we have had our our bouts with our hair. Um, I feel like for, you know, for quite some time for the majority of my life, I call it a sort of an abusive relationship mm. with my hair because, um, you know, my hair really cannot take extreme heat or toxic chemicals, you know, straightening chemicals or otherwise it will ultimately fall out. But these are the kinds of things that Black women often endure in order to conform to Eurocentric uh, expectations and norms that privilege straight hair, whether it be in our workplaces, in our education, in our own personal spaces as well, in our personal relationship and so forth. And so understanding that experience, I really wanted to bring to light that those narratives, you know, bring voice to our experience through my legal scholarship and advocacy, but really what triggered it was in law school at Tulane, I came across a case, Rogers versus American Airlines, where the court basically held, um, in that case, the the employer uh, banned, um, American Airlines banned uh, all braided hairstyles. And in that case, the, the Black woman, um, Renee Rogers, was wearing a cornrow braid cornrow braids mm. and um, and had been working there you know successfully for all this time and then decided that she wanted to wear cornrow braids and they barred her from doing so so she raised mm-hmm. a claim under title seven a race and sex discrimination claim challenging this grooming policy that banned cornrow braids well ultimately what the court did is what they what i call they, they created a hair splitting <laughs> legal decision or a legal outcome where they said that if an employer were to discriminate on the basis of afros, then that would be considered unlawful race discrimination. However, if you braid that same afro hair texture, uh, you you and ultimately in other cases, if you braid, lock or twist that afro and you're discriminated on those grounds, then magically is no longer about race. Mm. So for me, I really thought that this was a legal injustice that was created by our courts, a nonsensical uh, gap in civil rights protection that I wanted to fix. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I did. I set out to fix or to hopefully cure what um, I consider this hair splitting legal distinction that was having and continues to have such um, negative consequences and serious consequences on the the lives of African descendant women girls boys
0: and men you know i think when we really pull back the layers of the onion around the courts around employers around you know society and their judgment around black hair i think it's all you know and this is just my opinion i think it's all about you know controlling black bodies It's about it's another form of mental control and of social control over African-American people by telling them who they can be, how they can be it Mm -hmm. and and how they have to show up. And I think it it ties back to, to everything, to Jim Crow, to slavery, to the way that we were brought here. We never we we almost never have the ability to be in control of our own bodies wholly. And when you look at cases like what happened with Faith Finity. Um who was kicked off the school grounds because of her hair mm-hmm. and andrew andrew um, i think Jones Johnson johnson, johnson. johnson. andrew johnson mm-hmm. who who was barred from a wrestling match because of his dreads and then and then some more recent um issues like chastity Jones who mm-hmm. was had a job offer rescinded because right. because she refused to to change her hair and 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 your intellectual property never changes it never right. does. It's your it's your outward appearance. It's like we want to we want to control you. So what do you think about that conversation around control of black bodies as it relates to hair?
1: Well, you're right on point, Amira. In my work, I actually describe this kind of discrimination as a hyper regulation of black people's bodies via our hair. And it is very much rooted in eras of racial slavery and racial apartheid in this country and abroad. So as you know, I'm sure you're familiar with that one of the ways in which um, uh, slave owners and overseers were trying to sort of cement this um, inferior status, this enslaved status that was imposed upon us when we came to the shores of Um, America, what we now know as America, one of the ways to do that was to cut off our hair. Mm -hmm. And this was a way to dehumanize us to to oppress and to suppress a very central part of our cultural identity. Um, Our hair, again, told stories about, you know, our affiliations, our tribal affiliations, our religious affiliations, our our class and socioeconomic status, um, among so many other things. Right. Um, And so this was a way that, you know, individuals could suppress that very critical part of our body um, independent of and also in addition to, you know, regulating us on the basis of our skin color. And so to me, when I describe all of this work, what we're really trying to do is not only dismantle, say, nearly 40 years of legal, negative legal precedent under our federal civil rights laws, but we're really trying to dismantle over four, almost nearly 400 years of lawful race based uh, discrimination on the basis of our natural hair textures and hairstyles.
0: You know what? When you said that, I got a little chill over my body because it, you know, I, I have some of these moments where you get triggered, <laughs> and mm-hmm. and that and, you know I was I, I have another story. Not it wasn't necessarily related to me, but it was for a coworker. I remember being in an office building, and there was an an office uh, executive assistant, an African American woman, and she would always change her wigs. So every you know every mm-hmm. week, every other day, she had a new wig. I mean, she was fly. I mean, fly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I remember walking by with a manager at the time and him looking at her and her saying good morning to him. And she and he sort of flippantly replied, oh, I didn't even recognize who you were. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. and then as we mm-hmm. walk by and we go into the office to have our meeting, it's he and I. And he goes, um, is she is she he, she has new hair every time I see. Her, I mean, I really just can't keep up anymore. And he was sort of laughing when he said it but it was sort of triggering for me because mm-hmm. it's like you know just because she doesn't look like what you expect her to look like doesn't mean that you can comment on it you know what i mean and right, and, and right. the and the uh freedom that mm-hmm. people feel to say it to say it out right. loud it's like it's almost as if it's normal and and i think you know these are sort of the unconscious biases mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. nobody wants to talk about in the workplace Right. right, right. Because they're right. there, they're there all the time. It's it's the oh, and I've had it happen to me, you get braids and someone comes over and say, Oh, can I touch them? <laughs> and it, I've yeah. literally had people put their hands in my hair without my consent, which is a form, right. it's a violation of my personal space, violation of my body. And, you know, I think I'm not sure if they if they understand, or what do you think it is? Do you think they know? Or do you think it's the unconscious bias that just you know, leaves them blind.
1: Well, I think it's a little bit of everything that you're talking about in terms of, you know, unconscious biases. Sometimes they're very explicit and conscious stereotypes and biases that um, one may harbor as it relates to our natural hairstyles, because it is so often communicated that our natural hair texture is unusual. It's unkempt, it's uh, distracting. It's, you know, unprofessional. You know, we definitely have reports as it relates to um, more individuals um, describing natural hair textures and natural hairstyles as being unprofessional in comparison to straightened hairstyles that either Black women wear or even white women wear, right? So in part, you know, it could be very much about the operation of conscious uh, biases and stereotypes that are associated with our hair as well as unconscious ones. Uh, Because it is being, you know, these kinds of biases and stereotypes are permeated throughout our society and reinforced throughout our society. Um, to that point, you know, I I agree with you about, you know, this freedom with which people can, um, the freedom with which people can sort of exact or assert those types of daily indignities in our presence, um, as if it's not going to have some kind of emotional or psychological, or even in some cases, a physical physiological impact on us. Right. Um, And so it's about education. Some people may not really fully understand that they might be really um, imposing on your bodily integrity when they ask to or not ask to touch your hair. Right. Or they make certain types of comments. But this is also a part of the free the hair movement and um, is to try to educate people so that people can stop engaging in those daily indignities or what people may often call as microaggressions mm. in our workplaces, in educational spaces, and
0: beyond. Absolutely. And um. so now, I mean, as we look at 2020 and what's going on, you sort of begin to see so many natural hair care brands popping up. You know, Dove ran a large campaign on natural hair care. Um, you have, you know, artists like Taraji P. Henson breaking into the natural hair care line. You have Mayel. You have uh, Share Moisture, uh, Carol's Daughter. Um, it almost seems as if natural, you know, Black women are attempting to reclaim our bodies and mm-hmm. our hair. I know for me, I have. I grew out my relaxer probably in 2000 and it was right after I had my sex, my three years after I had my first son. So that would probably be put me in around 2016-ish. Mm-hmm. I started growing out my my relaxer, cut it off. I'm completely natural now. And I embrace my natural hair. I embrace my braids. I wear them to work. And I am and I show up like, look, take me as I am or don't take me at all. And right. so right. one of the things right. I, I started saying to my friends because she called me one day, she was going for an interview at a very large um, corporate organization. And she's natural, she has beautiful natural hair. Um, And she calls me and she goes, do you think I should wear my natural hair to my interview or should I press it out? And I told her, wear your natural hair. If they don't want to hire you because of your hair, you don't want to work there. Right. Like, so to me. She ended up getting the job because obviously, you know, she's brilliant. But, <laughs> I, you know, I I think, you know, that's where I started to come from. I, I'm like, you know what? And I think that the, the conversation is shifting among Black women in some in some instance. And I think that even though that conversation is shifting among, among Black women, there's still a little bit of, of divide within the Black community around hair. So what do you think? Um, do you think that there is a divide? First, let me ask you the question. Do you okay. think that there is a divide? Um, among the Black community around hair? And and um, what do you think about big brands like Target and Dove um, sort of trying to embrace the Black hair care movement?
1: Sure. So, you know, I think that, yes, there definitely is still a lot of explicit <clears throat> and implicit pressure that even within the African, co- Amer- African American community that we may impose upon one another as it relates to you know, wearing straightened hairstyles, conforming to that type of expectation and mandate. Um, And it is slow, but slowly. But surely being dismantled and deconstructed, right, and challenged, and and I do believe that the the now the the fact that we actually are able to have hair care products in our midst that in order to to that will facilitate us being able to embrace our natural hair texture, um, for you know so many of us we have not known since we were children. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't even know our hair because we have been engaged in, you know, extreme heat styling and um, toxic relaxants or the, the majority, if not almost all of our lives. Mm-hmm. So I think that has definitely helped to sort of liberate People, um, namely black women and girls, to to embrace their natural hair texture and and celebrate their natural hair texture in ways in which we likely have not seen since you know the the black hair revolution, natural hair revolution in the nineteen sixties and seventies, right? Um, you know, in terms of you know the the various corporations that have been. Um, sponsoring or at least, you know, getting involved in the celebration of, uh, of our hair diversity. I think it's an excellent move. I think the more that people are getting on board, I think it helps to advance the conversation. It helps to educate people about the harms of natural hair discrimination and to hopefully to try to reform policies and practices in our workplaces, in our schools, among other spaces that um, treat natural natural hairstyles that we are are wearing as something that is wrong or something that is aberrant, as something that even has any level of correlation to our abilities to do our jobs, which they don't. And I think all of these things combined really help to to encourage people to focus on what's in our heads and the competencies that flow from them rather than what's on top of our heads.
0: Yeah. And before we move on, I want to ask you, because I know for a fact that there's going to be a young woman or man, maybe older woman or man listening to this podcast, and they're going to say, you know what, Professor Wendy Green, I I am experiencing hair discrimination at my job. I know that the reason why I haven't gotten this promotion is because I refuse to cut my locks or I refuse to shave my fro. What advice would you give to them? on how they can encourage that conversation within their workplace.
1: Right, and it's a difficult conversation. Anytime that we're trying to confront discrimination or inequities in our workplaces, it's very challenging, right? Um, Because oftentimes people don't want, on the receiving end of that conversation, don't want to either acknowledge or appreciate that they might be engaging in um, discrimination. But I do think it's important to at least raise, raise it um, and, and, and hopefully you can um, have a very frank and transparent conversation about, you know, the fact that you are aware that this discrimination is, 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 is going on. And to some degree, it might be a point of educating them because some people may not fully understand and appreciate the kinds of consequences of this discrimination, especially as it relates to Black women. In the workplace. So, for example, oftentimes, you know, I really try to talk about the what I call the invisible harms Mm -hmm. of natural hair discrimination. And so, what that means is when a person tells you that you cannot wear your hair in its natural uh, state, effectively for girls and women, you know, that means that we have to straighten our hair, Mm -hmm. right? And so, we have to conform to what I call a straight hair mandate or expectation. And in order to do that, which we've already described, is what you know, using chemical relaxants that are very toxic, that can be very damaging,
0: that can make our hair fall out. That can can poison your baby if you're pregnant.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. right. Exactly. So it has these, these consequences, these physiological consequences on our, um, you know, on our children potentially, as well as on our, on ourselves, Mm. Uh, because there have, there has been research that, draws the core, potential correlation between the chemical relaxants that we're using and higher rates of uterine fibroids, uterine cancer, more aggressive forms of breast cancer mm-hmm. um, amongst Black women, also rate, higher rates of infertility amongst Black women and higher rates of hormonal activity amongst Black girls. So these, um, you know, when we think about natural hair discrimination, it's not simply about whether, you know, and this is important, don't get me wrong, about whether or not I'm going to get the job because that relates to our economic security. Mm. But oftentimes, if we don't conform to these straight hair mandates or expectations, it's not simply about our livelihood, but it's about also our lives. And so when I talk about this issue, I say, if you care about Black women's health, then you have to care about Black women's hair.
0: Mm. Mm.
1: And these are the conversations absolutely that we have to have in our workplaces, in our homes as well, um, and in other spaces too. So people can fully understand the magnitude um, and not to, not to, to, to oversimplify the, 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 the significance of natural hair discrimination on our daily lives.
0: Man, that one, that one was heavy. If you care about Black women's hair, do you care about Black women's health? And I mean, I feel like if I even stop there, we're gonna go down a whole another <laughs> rabbit hole because Black women's health and what's going on, I, you know. But be, absolutely. But
1: I, it has a con- absolutely and it draws the connections to all of the issues that we're talking about in terms of the public, you know, treating racism and racial discrimination as a a matter of public health.
0: Yes. Um this yes.
1: absolutely is a part of this conversation. So when we are in th- and, and, and more broadly when we're talking about Black Lives Matter, this too is a part of that conversation too. They're all connected to one another. So again, if you care about our well-being, you care about our our full exercise of freedom and citizenship in this country, and to be treated as such, then again, you have to care about this issue.
0: And I couldn't agree with you more. And sometimes people get so misconstrued. You know, I I have a Black Lives Matter flag in front of my house. and and, And when I say Black Lives Matter... For me, for me, Black Lives Matter means everything that you just said. It means making sure that Black people have access to capital, information, resources, exposure, networking at the same rate in which our white counterparts do. It's not about Black Lives Matter versus the police or Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter, mm-hmm. or Black Lives Matter versus white people. Like, I don't even have time for those conversations. Mm-hmm. I, my conversation is, let's focus on this, the nuances of what's really impacting the Black community so that we can, we, let's fix that first. Because when we fix that, we fix everything else. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. educated Black people make better vo- voting choices. And when you make better voting choices, you avoid conflict with the police educated Black people empower their children. They, they, they educate their children. They understand community awareness and community self, self-financing. Because when you address the way that we treat each other and the way that we finance our businesses, the way that we invest in one another, then you know what? We can control the way our children are educated. We can influence the, their generational wealth. When we understand life insurance, and the importance of having a 401k and the importance of a will and the importance of a uh, advanced directive when you understand those things you can cre- you can have generational wealth when i look at i work in the financial services field and i have the benefit of looking at personal financial statements from People all of all different racial spectrums, and the one common thread among people who have who have sustained wealth and who own businesses is that they have life insurance. And when they pass on, those life insurance policies a million dollars, ten million dollars, five million dollars, and and they they so their kids are inheriting mm-hmm. this wealth. And, mm-hmm. and and among the black community, I mean, I it's like we we rely on our employers for life insurance. Mm-hmm. That's it. Mm-hmm. And when you and when you get terminated. You have nothing, you get seen, you know, and it's a miss. And so I think before we can even, so when I look at black lives matter, the reason why I fly the flag for myself is also for the social justice movement, but it's also for black people Mm -hmm. to understand like we Mm -hmm. matter, we matter to each other. We Mm -hmm. have to support and encourage one another and and really uplift one another because if we don't know, we cannot expect anyone else to, if we're not doing it ourselves. So it's Mm -hmm. inner work. (laughs) Mm-hmm. right in a word but i want to ask you so um what what did justice ruth ginsburg mean to you i know you mentioned to me before that you met her i have to hear that story and i want to know what she meant to your life and 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 who you are today
1: sure I, you know i yeah, you know it was, it was as you know i was just really just shocked and and devastated to hear of her passing Last night, and for me, very similar to Justice Thurgood Marshall, Justice Ginsburg was really a, a beacon of hope and a beacon of um, real social and legal change, um, a change agent for equality. Mm -hmm. um for and for justice and you know even as a child you know I sort of dreamt of being a Supreme Court justice in part (laughs) (laughs) because I'd read about Justice Thurgood Marshall but then later I you know and then when Justice O'Connor came on the court and then Justice Ginsburg came on the court it really helped to to sort of um to for a young girl for a young girl who had an aspiration to be a civil rights advocate, and um, it really just helped to inspire me um, in terms of my path in this profession.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, and even more so, you know, she was also not only a, a Supreme Court justice, but she was also a legal academic. She was a law professor. And so one of the things that I will have to say about meeting her, which was a really amazing experience some years ago, um, I was on the executive committee for the, um, the Association of American Law Schools Women in Legal Education section, which is the largest section of the AALS. And we had decided to, to um, commemorate Justice Ginsburg's legacy by having a, a, a Ruth Bader Ginsburg a Lifetime Achievement Award mm-hmm. that we would give to um, you know a woman, a law professor who had really advanced social justice and advocacy and women's rights um, and equity in the legal academic field for 20 years or more. And so, of course, the first person to to award the, the, the prize to was Justice Ginsburg. She could not make it to the annual meeting that we have, um, the AAALS has, so we were, had the, the privilege of going to her chambers to present her the award, the executive committee. And and um, to present it. And what was so phenomenal about that was that she was just so gracious. She loved to tell stories, which was really amazing. And one of those stories was that her chambers were the chambers of Justice Thurgood Marshall. Wow. So it was really, again, another full circle moment. The 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 person that had um, really inspired me in the legal career, in the legal profession to want to become a civil rights lawyer. Um, I felt his presence in that space and it was just really amazing to be in her presence in that space.
0: You know, what inspired inspires me most about uh, Justice Ginsburg and, and, you know, what a beautiful, beautiful tribute and experience for you to have been, you know, I think, you know, God makes no mistakes. So you were in that space because, you know, you are, you are ordained to follow in those footsteps and to be your own social justice warrior. But, What's, what inspired me most about her work was that she understood um the nuances and the, the subconscious uh insecurities that women face mm-hmm. as it relates to um self-advocacy. And and that and that's through her her uh challenging of statute of limitations mm-hmm. on the women's ability to, to fight pay discrimination. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that that work um it's it's so important because you know, it's true, you know, sometimes I'm not saying that men don't feel this way, too, because I'm sure there are men out there who probably, you know, but it's they're less likely, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Stati- statistically, they're statistically right. less right. likely to... Um, to feel inferior to to fight for their wages, and they go for jobs that they're not qualified for, and they get those jobs. You know, I've seen it happen dozens of times in my career. Mm-hmm. Um, and then women have that sort of extra layer where we have mm-hmm. to be overly overly qualified just to get the job. And then when we get the job, you're you're you're, you're always wondering in the back of your mind, are they paying me right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, what do you think about um, you know Justice Ginsburg's work around? Um, Pay equality and what she means to the women's rights movement.
1: Well, you know her her dissenting opinion in the better case is probably going to go down as one of the most um, the most impactful opinions of her of her legal career. In addition to others, but one of the most um, impactful. Um, and and really, what was beautiful about that. And refreshing about her opinion was that exactly what you're speaking to is that she was able to really convey the everyday experiences of women in the workplace mm-hmm. and the kinds of barriers that we are facing to, to, to bring about uh, full inclusion and equity in the workplace. And that includes, you know, equal pay for equal work that we're doing in the workplace and the the challenges of exactly getting that information to ensure that we are being treated equitably, right? Because so many things are are hidden um, and not discussed. There's a lack of transparency as it relates to how decisions are made and what kinds of decisions are made. And her dissenting opinion really did help to illuminate those, those types of barriers that we are often confronted with um, so that we can try to advance equity in our workplaces, and that's one of the great things about Justice Ginsburg. Similar to Justice. Thurgood Marshall is that they were, they, in, their, in their legal decision making, they really were able to communicate the full humanity of the parties that were involved in the cases, as well as the the experiences and the conditions on the ground. And to be able to provide such a narrative that could really, it wasn't abstract, right? Mm-hmm. That is one that we could absolutely be able to to engage with and to be able to understand and appreciate. So she really did an excellent job of exploring the human condition in her opinions and um, unlike um, you know no other justice to me other than possibly Justice Thurgood Marshall and currently Justice Sotomayor and that's such a huge huge legacy that she has left um, on the court and for I think future lawmakers.
0: Absolutely and all those all those beautiful years and You know, she'll certainly, certainly go down as a legend for sure. Yeah. And so what do you think um, will be or is the biggest social justice fight of the 21st century? Um,
1: Oh, wow. I I can't even begin to tell you (laughs) because there's so many. Um, You know, so many, so many. And that's not any different from any other time in our history. There are so many different um, battles that we are having to, to confront and try to overcome. Um, so many fights that we are engaging in to bring about equity, to bring about full citizenship, to bring about greater inclusion in, um, um, in this constitutional democracy that we are living in. So it's really hard to pin down um, obviously, you know, right now we're having really necessary conversations again um, that have been persisting. I won't say again, but they have been persisting as it relates to racial inequality, um, racial inequities, in in so many different domains in our lives. And I think that will continue to be the one of the the biggest fights. Um, you know, as as W. B. Du Bois told us in the early parts of the 20th century is that you know the issue of the color line mm. will be uh, one of the biggest um, issues of the 20th century, and I would have to just agree with him in that it's going to be again and um, continues to be one of the the major social and legal and political issues of the 21st century.
0: I couldn't agree more. And, and one thing I do worry about um, as it relates to that, this entire conversation is death by fatigue or division by fatigue. And the reason why I say that is because there's such, you know, so many organizations are sort of wanting to wave their flag and stick their flags in the ground around social justice reform and, and, and promote all of these African-American people. And everyone's trying to hurry up and get people into positions to put on this affront for mm-hmm. the public that we are an equitable workplace or we are, you know, we are socially woke, right? Mm-hmm. Um but then you you I'm in the chat rooms, I'm in community boards in my neighborhood and I'm I'm in the offline communities of Twitter and and TikTok. And while there is a huge group of support for the social justice movement, there are whispers and rallies in the background saying, you know, we're tired of having this conversation it it's been had it's been done and they just need to figure it out and get over it. And so I worry, one of the things I worry about is is death by division, right? Where mm-hmm. we 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 get so divided among the conversation or it's forced down our throat. It's kind of like becoming numb to something. Almost like mm-hmm. um I, my, my husband and I were talking about the whole idea of um murder porn, right? So when you see a black man killed on television, over and over and over and over and over again, something in your brain, right? I, I did a whole, I wrote a whole piece on it about how um, there's, a, there's a part of your brain. Um, I figured that, uh, I, I'm going to butcher the name, so I'm not even going to try to say it, but there's a part <laughs> of your brain that is responsible for your body's reaction mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. fear and to anxiety and to trauma. And when you continuously overstimulate that part mm-hmm. of the brain, that mm-hmm. that part of the brain dies. Like cells, die and they don't regenerate, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You need neuroplasticity to regenerate that part of your brain. And right. so it, it's almost like that could happen, right? You We keep it right. triggered and triggered and triggered and triggered to the point where your body dissociates from it. Your brain right. literally just closes the door and says, we're not going to acknowledge or engage with that. And Even that's more. a form of post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. And so, you know, what do you think about death by division? Or do you think that could happen? Or am I bugging?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think that you are <laughs> no. um, You know, and we've seen this before Where, you know, y- y- to be clear not everyone was on board with, you know The civil rights movements of the 1950s, 60s Or the 20th century, let me just say that The 20th century civil rights movement, right mm-hmm. Um, That, and, and even before then You know, people were tiring of conversations As it relates to emancipation and abolition mm-hmm. Um, You know, so what we're talking about today in terms of people becoming fatigued by conversations around racial inequity and racial injustices, this is nothing new, um, but that doesn't mean because other people may get tired, that doesn't mean that we have to stop having the conversation. Um, If we're trying to really actualize the promises and the the guarantees of full equality and citizenship in this country, we have to continue to advance the conversation and continue to to try to bring about legislation and policies, litigation um, that is going to to ensure that those constitutional guarantees um, are realized. So, um, you know, I, I don't think I think, you know, I, what you're describing um, is, is very important because I think it also speaks to, you know, for those of us who are engaged in the fight. Um, who are engaged in social act, social justice activism, that we too have to take care of ourselves so that we don't become fatigued, um, that we're not suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder by virtue of our activism and our, in our public engagement, that we have to take care of ourselves as well, that there's so only so much information that we can absolutely process and process in a healthy Manner, right? Um, so personally, I can no longer look at those videos uh, because to me, it, it's just too, it, to me, it's just a, a 21st century um, lynching. Mm hmm. And, um, and, and and it's very challenging for me to, to watch those things and not become emotionally distraught, right? Um, but it doesn't mean that I don't care about those issues. It's that I just no longer need to see the visuals of them to recognize the harm and to recognize the injustice that's being done. And I can still fight against those types of injustices.
0: Absolutely. Um,
1: so I try to, try to safeguard my mind as well, but still be a part of the solution.
0: Oh my goodness! I poof I, that was it it just triggered me again. You see how I just got triggered? Crazy <laughs> because you know, um you know i had i I used to take in that the, the videos I read every article, I used to be uh, ingratiated with with this kind of content, and I was sitting uh, in my bed, and my husband's like, hey, babe, look at this look at what just happened. He was trying to send me an article and send me a video of a man, another, yet another you know, crime against a black man. And I said, I can't, I can't do this right now. And I realized that I, I like, I put up a block, like, I just cannot, you know, because you carry that with you everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. And it's so heavy. It's so heavy. It, it's so heavy. And I, I it, it just, you know, but before we wrap, because we're coming up on the hour, I wanted to ask you, um, what advice would you have given to yourself, you know, if you could talk to Wendy, who was 10 years old, eight years old, what advice would you give to yourself then that you know now about the world that we live in or about your purpose in life?
1: Sure. Um, What I would give, the advice I would give to my younger self is that the world is imperfect, uh, but again, try to do every single day, something that will bring about positive change in the world and not to be discouraged in doing so. um, I would also tell myself to live every day without regret, live every day with purpose and passion. Um, Knowing that living every day with purpose and passion, does that mean it won't come without its challenges? Uh, But to, to end those challenges, to to remind yourself that there is going to be strength that you that will be cultivated as you are combating and overcoming those challenges, and then lastly, I would say to myself, um, live every day joyfully and authentically. Live every day um, with as is you know live every day
0: living your absolute best life. Mm, that's hard to do. You got to give us a secret before you go. <laughs> How does one, in, in fact, live? Days, best you, know, life? <laughs> you know, living every
1: day authentically, I think, is a part of living your absolute best life. Um, you know, doing the things that bring you joy and doing the things that bring other people joy.
0: Yes, I I agree. I. I want to thank you so much, so, so, so much for sharing your story, for sharing your your fight for social justice reform, for being an advocate for every woman and man who has found themselves standing in the mirror frustrated before they decide to go to work because of their hair. Um, Without you, this work cannot be transformed. And so I'm going to um, end our conversation there but i um I, and thank you so much i hope you have a wonderful remainder of the weekend and we'll talk again soon yes thank you so much amira this has been wonderful oh you're welcome it was my pleasure